The phrase roosters turned into feather dusters is having a pretty good outing right now in Germany. For years, its former Chancellor Angela Merkel was lauded as leader of the free world with sky-high approval ratings. But the war in Ukraine and dramatically shifting geopolitics is threatening all that. Some are now saying her appeasement, that word, of Putin's Russia may be her greatest mistake and her unfortunate legacy. Well, to discuss whether indeed Merkel, in her 16 years in office, did do enough to prepare and to communicate to Germany and indeed Europe the risks that Putin posed, I'm pleased to welcome back to the program Andreas Kluth. He's a Bloomberg opinion columnist covering European politics based in Berlin. Thank you for joining me, Andreas. Hello, Geraldine. Nice to be back. Look, there's some extraordinary stuff being written amongst uh, others by you yourself. You've said Merkel might go down as being the Neville Chamberlain of our time, that in history lessons, this is amazing line, Merkel in Minsk will be paired with Chamberlain in Munich. Expand on that for us, please. Well, Neville Chamberlain was the British Prime Minister who uh, wanted to save Europe from war and to do everything in his power to avert war by talking to Hitler and conceding as much as possible in the hope that this would make Hitler not go further. And in Munich, uh, he negotiated away that way uh, uh, parts of Czechoslovakia and came home to proclaim to Britain that this is peace in our time. And we now know that that it was anything but that. It was the beginning of war. Merkel, when I recently heard her in her first interview since she stopped being chancellor, sounded very similar in that she felt she had this duty to do everything possible to prevent the worst. She simultaneously claimed that she already understood in 2014 and even earlier, and I believe her, that Putin was dangerous. Uh, but that she, she didn't communicate that, but she just thought, let's keep them at the table, let's keep negotiating. And with that attitude, essentially of appeasement, she was hoping that he wouldn't do what he did this year uh, and mm. what he might do next. Look, it's extraordinary because what's emerging is that she had this uh, relentless pessimism uh, clearly, which she conveyed to her aides. She read widely. It wasn't just ignorance. She felt that the so-called rules-based order that we talk about constantly in Australia was actually fragile and could um, collapse under pressure. And clearly the advice given to her, you tell me if I'm wrong at any point, was you can't convey that to the German people. It's too bleak. Now, in retrospect, in retrospect, um, maybe she could have done a bit more of that. First of all, I agree with the advice. I would have, if, if I'd been the advisor, I would have given the same advice. I was writing these articles all these years. Germany was in a sort of um, sleep after the you know, peaceful revolution of when the wall came down and reunification. And they thought the whole world had finally seen reason and we're in this postmodern age where we all just do sing kumbaya with each other. And there was no mainstream party, no politician and no journalist in Germany that would have listened to her if she had said, wait a second, there is this huge threat and we have to take the consequences, which include not making ourselves dependent on 
Putin's gas and oil and coal and all of this as well. And also we have to build up our military just in case. Nobody was in the mood to listen to her, not her coalition partners, not even the opposition. That's why she got that advice. And it's not coming back to haunt us. Well, um, did anybody, was anybody speaking like that? That's my first question. And second, did she have alternatives to these, this dependence uh, on Russia, which she chose and, you know, everybody <laughs> seemed happy enough about, like in Germany? Were there other options, realistically? To your first question, was there anybody speaking like this in Germany? You, you, the equivalent would be a Winston Churchill. Yes, the yes. Low voice is sort of almost an opposition to Neville Chamberlain back then. And the answer is there, there wasn't in politics, really. Uh, there were in the think tanks and among intellectuals, but they were not listened to. Some of them have now become well-known because they're now on talk shows because people are like, okay, you know... The mainstream media is wondering, why didn't we listen to you earlier, uh, but not at the time. And then in terms of alternatives, it's really hard because of other seemingly unrelated mistakes that Germany made as well. Uh, for example, it exited after the Fukushima disaster, it exited, decided to exit nuclear power generation and the last three nuclear power plants are supposed to be turned off in a few months this year in the middle of this energy crisis okay and uh, that and it simultaneously was trying to increase the share of renewable energy of course but if you take out nuclear uh, as the merkel government uh, decided to do you have to make up the, sh the shortfall and the only way to do that was was coal or gas gas is less dirty than coal so it was supposed to be the the the, the filler mm. during these years. And that gas was supposed to come from Russia in two big pipelines, one operational and one not. And so therefore, th there were very few good options. They would have had to drop that their energy policy and they would have had to admit that Russia was an existential threat, which it wasn't yet, you know and do all these other things. So uh, she went with the path of least resistance. And, and this is, I think, her failing. This is what I'm saying is mm -hmm. she should have at least communicated that, used her bullhorn to say, wait a second, let, we can do this, but here are the risks. And she didn't do that. Well, I mean, to be fair, you said this to us on Saturday Extra when, when we were talking about her legacy, when she had those sort of sky-high ratings and saying, my goodness, here's this remarkable woman. You said, well, qualified, <laughs> a qualified remarkableness. And, um, I mean, I noticed that Oliver Moody, writing in the London Times, says she became uh, relied too heavily on a sort of entrenched um, consensus across the realms of politics, business and the media. Now, in terms of Putin, she's now saying she absolutely saw that he hated the, the Europe, he hated democracy, <laughs> uh, and yet, she, well, she certainly didn't convey... She did not convey that, did she? She did not convey that because at the time, if she had conveyed it, she could have kissed goodbye that whole policy with Russia of, yeah. of, that, we, that I'm calling appeasement. You can't say that as head of government. 
and then not earn the fallout. So she didn't say it for that reason. She also she would have had to unravel so many of her policies. Your point is exactly she she Mm. couldn't have gone on. So the official story, and by the way, Merkel as a leader is the correct subject of our conversation, Geraldine. But her coalition partners, the opposition parties, all the other parties, and then the the on the extreme the extreme parties even more they were all shades of pro-russian or they were all in this denial that was just the german consensus at the time so she would have as leader had to say i'm going to change the consensus in my country and this was that while there were other crises going on unrelated crises and she thought that was more for example she was always worried as much as about the Russian president, she was worried as much about the U.S. president because that was Trump for a while, and she feared, and and she may turn out to be right there too, that Trump could come back. So there were a lot of things to manage, and she said, I can't foist this on my population right now. I believe that's what she was thinking. Well, she says, I gather, um, that uh, it, it, it's all very well for people to say all of this now. Neville Chamberlain would have said the same thing. But she felt it was critically important to keep the biggest uh, country, the biggest nation in Europe, well, in the European continent, at the table. Um now, you can see how, how she is thinking, and that's, of course, when the whole change through trade policy came in, uh, make commerce, you know, rather than politics, the, the um, interlocutor. She now says she never thought it would work, but she doesn't believe she has to apologise for anything. Well, the, the interesting thing, and by the way, we can already add, and I think it's of interest in Australia, she did the same with China, Mm. Okay, she Mm. arguably, we will soon be having conversations, you and I, about that problem, because she, in a different way, not not natural gas, but commercial interweaving, she made Germany also dependent on the Chinese economy, and when she should have seen and probably did see that threat as well. But if you go back to, yeah, you're absolutely right. The thing is, what would the alternative have been? She in, in to appeasement. She could have said, "Wait a second, I think you're such a threat, Putin. I'm going to stop all this." But then she probably would have, if you now think yourself into the psychology and politics of the Kremlin, provoked such a crisis even earlier. I well, mean, it wouldn't have made that, the crisis go away. Th- that's you know? the argument that she, I think, even made in this one interview she's given that she bought the Ukrainians' time. So that if they had been asked, like in 2014 to 2021, she actually bought them time, much like, I think Neville Chamberlain virtually said that too, um, you, you buy time to, to equip yourself and to have a, have a chance. And I think that's actually true. I don't think that gets her out of jail. You know, Merkel, mm-hmm. she's making it too easy of herself. But that's true, because in 2014, the Ukraine was a different country. The, it, it was corrupt. It didn't have Zelensky, the heroic president, yet. There was not that same fighting spirit, and certainly militarily, it, it, it wouldn't have lasted as long. So in that sense, she was right. But it, we didn't hear that from her time, that she was saying, oh, I'm buying the Ukrainians' time, but I see the risk. No, no, no. It was my, no, we'll, talk, we'll keep talking to Russia, and we'll keep building 
having this pipeline that, that we're talking about right now, where, where mm-hmm. Putin is throttling the gas, and we're going to build a second pipeline to double our dependence <laughs> on, on, on Russian gas. That was what, throughout the, in 2014 and all these years, what she was doing. And that doesn't make sense, you see. I mean, um, to, and, to uh, double uh, down on the dependency doesn't make sense. It certainly doesn't. Um, and 46, just to add to that, 46% of German, German manufacturers rely on China for their supply chain. So, I mean, this is, there is this other realm as well, as you alluded to. And not just um, supply chains, but certain raw earths and materials and, the, you know, um, components like semiconductors. I mean, there are lots of problems that the German economy, which was supposed to be the strongest, in, in, in past crises um, that you've covered, you know, mm. usually Germany had to bail out the, the southern economies. Now it, everything's flipped. Germany is the, the in terms of the, the energy problem and some of the Chinese export problems and stuff, uh, one of the most at risk in the European Union. Yeah, look, just last reflection, I suppose. Um, it, it must be profound, the rethinking underway in Germany, given its history and its sense that it, it really could grab the yield of peace and, and be a constructive country. I mean, just give me an idea of what's going on in the conversations you're having. The profound rethinking right now is happening between people like Geraldine Duke and Andreas Kluth and Andreas Kluth and the in private conversations, politicians and think tank people in Berlin. Uh, it is not yet happening on the television talk shows and pub because it's, it requires the German mainstream to say the, the, all the things we thought were true since reunification were wrong. Gee. We were wrong. And also, we lectured our partners in Europe. We lectured these naive Americans. We lectured everyone who said, you're, you're wrong, because people did tell them you're wrong. We said, no, no, you don't understand. And so this is psychologically very difficult. You don't, you don't um, come, come clean on your own past sins overnight. It's happening, but it'll take time. And a lot of people are still in denial because they're into, these intellectuals, professed philosophers and stuff, Germany is known for philosophers, they keep writing open letters in the newspapers, essentially regurgitating these old arguments because they can't, they would have to disavow essentially entire careers worth of writing and speaking. And that is very hard. So it's just starting to happen. Is that why Germany hasn't delivered? That's the other thing. The English get so annoyed having just been there. Germany hasn't yet delivered the equipment it says it's going to deliver to the Ukraine. And there's a sort of barely contained fury from time to time among the English about this. That's actually officially started as of this week, Uh these first anti-aircraft tanks um, uh, actually are there on the ground. But that's that's like months after they, they, they were supposed to be there. That is, I would say, a symptom of the disease. It's this evasive is what it is. The word is pivot, I think, uh, that is needed, <laughs> Andreas. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, what, what an amazing, what an amazing set of developments. Thank you very much indeed for joining us again and outlining uh, some of the impact in Germany. 
Thank you, Geraldine. Andreas Kluth, he's a Bloomberg opinion columnist covering European politics. I notice Yanis Varoufakis, who I know RN listeners follow a lot, former uh, finance minister of Greece, wrote in Project Syndicate, uh, reprinted in the Financial Review this week, uh, that waking up to the news that your country's business model is busted is very difficult. Greeks know this feeling. We felt it in our bones in the early 2010, he writes. My message to German friends is simple. Quit mourning, cut through the denial, anger, bargaining and depression and start designing a new economic model. Just thinking of what Andreas was saying there at the end about the fact that this isn't a full-on debate yet in uh, German public opinion. Now, this has really got a lot of you going, so thank you for your texts. They're, <laughs> they're, very, they're most intriguing, very um, l- learned group, Saturday Extra listeners. Well, up next, digitising our public service. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.